Good morning. As I was preparing the message for this week, I was reminded of a time when, uh, back in about 2003, when I was in high school, my youth group uh, went out to the Black Hills in Wyoming. And part of the trip was uh, to stop by Mount Harney and walk the trail that went around that mountain. And, and that, was, uh, that was something that we thought would be exciting to do. And we got toward the end of that trail, and the youth pastor, who was already struggling with her blood sugars at that point because she hadn't had much to eat, had fallen and twisted her ankle. So it made a complicated situation even worse. Uh, the pastor and I agreed that we needed to go forward, him and I both, and uh, find the best route back to the vehicles so that we could determine how to best uh, get her back and, and how to quickly get her back uh, where we can get, get her food and, and doctor up her ankle. Um, so we, we went on ahead. He went on the trail to the left, and I went on the trail to the right. And it wasn't long before I realized that my trail wasn't going to work. But we had agreed that we were going to meet at the vehicles and then discuss which trail to take. So we didn't really have another plan as far as, well, if your trail is impossible, meet me back here. And so I decided, well, you know, i got to get up this trail. And so I'm going up this incline, and I'm reaching ahead of me and grabbing onto tree trunks and pulling myself up. It was quite obvious this wasn't going to work for the, youth, for the youth pastor's wife. And I made it to the top of the trail, and I started going ahead. And by this time, the sun was starting to set. And if you've ever hiked in the mountains, when the sun is setting, you know how quickly the light disappears. Um, and I didn't have a flashlight. We weren't supposed to be out there after dark. So it shows how prepared this Iowa boy was to be out there in the mountains. I went on ahead, and it didn't lead back to the uh, parking lot. In fact, it just went straight down. And so then I turned around, and I decided, OK, I need to get back to the trail, because I'm not going to scale those walls ahead of me and try to find a parking lot. And I started walking back, and then all of a sudden, the trail dropped straight down in front of me. It was jagged rocks, and I knew I didn't come that way. I had gotten turned around, and I had gotten lost where I was. And by now, the, the darkness was quickly setting. It was quickly becoming a hopeless situation for me. Um, and so that, that's kind of uh, the, the hopeless situation part there is kind of what I want us to see here when we look at our passage in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 is on page 807 in your pew Bible, if you turn there. Let's go ahead and read that. We're going to read from verses 1 through 4. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who, was born, who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. I'll go ahead and read just a little bit further here. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. 
for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. At the beginning of this passage, we see three individuals that are mentioned. We see Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem of Judea. We see Herod the king. And we also see these wise men coming in from the east. Now, to kind of get the the feel for what was going on uh, during that time, I want to focus on Herod for a moment. Herod was a very powerful, very manipulative and very dangerous king. He was chronically insecure about his reign and his holding on to his throne. If anybody would speak, if anybody of influence uh, would speak out against King Herod, he would quickly have them executed and removed. In fact, toward the end of his life, just to kind of show you how insecure he was, Uh, He had deceptively called together all the Jewish leaders that most of whom he had probably appointed himself to to gather them together for this meeting, and he had them all arrested. So that uh, at the time that he died, all of those Jewish leaders would be executed at that same time. The idea was that if I get rid of these Jewish leaders, there will be nobody to lead the rejoicing at my death among the Jews. Here's a, here's a quote that I found in, uh, in regard to King Herod. The massacre of the innocents was typically, or rather, was typical of Herod's extreme behavior, recorded independently by Jewish historian Josephus. Herod was intensely jealous and chronically insecure. He had suffered a severe breakdown in 29 BC after he murdered his wife, Marion, and his brother-in-law, Joseph, after falsely accusing them of having an affair. As recently as 7 BC, Herod had executed his own sons, Aristobulus and Alexander, whom he accused of plotting to take the throne. And the following year, around the time of Jesus' birth, he tortured each of his slave girls in turn to reveal any further threats to his authority. In 4 BC, Herod executed his own son, Antipater. It shows you that this man, this madman in rule, would go to, would stop at no lengths to protect his right to the throne. So when we read here, I believe it's in chapter, uh, verse 3 of chapter 2, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. The CSB puts it, uh, he was greatly disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And all Jerusalem with him. Is it any any, uh, wonder that all of Jerusalem was greatly disturbed with King Herod? When these wise men come on the scene, seemingly out of nowhere, asking, where is this king? Where where is this, uh, where where is the child born, king of the Jews? We have seen a star. We've come to worship him. Is it any wonder then that the people in Jerusalem were worried about what might come from this, from Herod, who had already displayed that his wrath knew no bounds when it came to his authority? So we see here 
surrounding this verse that we often recognize as a Christmas verse. We often put it on our Christmas cards and send it to friends and loved ones in anticipation of the Christmas holiday and the joy and the excitement that's going to come with that. Here comes Christ. He's going to be born. He's going to shepherd the people of God. This is the one we've been looking for. But in that day, there wasn't a lot of excitement surrounding that. There was a lot of fear, a lot of anxiety, a lot of trouble, and justifiably so. Turn back with me, if you would, to Micah chapter 5. I want to look at the, the context from which this prophecy is taken. Micah chapter 5, I had some trouble finding that one too, is on page 778. If you turn there, you'll find Micah chapter 5. Verse 1, and we're going to stop with verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Micah here is speaking to the fact that a king of Assyria was outside the gates of Jerusalem. His name was Sennacherib. They had just uh, been in Israel, laid waste Israel, taken Israel captive. And now Sennacherib was at the gates of Jerusalem. That, that Ju- uh, Jerusalem is called O Daughter of Troops instead of O Daughter of Zion, which is uh, one of the more well-known uh, names of Jerusalem, O Daughter of Zion, speaks to the fact that she was defenseless against the army that was at their gates. They were in a very hopeless situation. There was nothing they could do. Their king, Hezekiah, had been ridiculed and humiliated by Sennacherib at this point. In fact, he was sending messengers to uh, the people of Jerusalem saying, Hey, why are you trusting in your king, Hezekiah? What can he do for you? Don't trust in your king. Come over to my side here in Assyria, and I will give you horses. I will give you wealth. They were in a hopeless situation. And why were they there? Except for idolatry, abuses from the upper class to the lower class. In fact, many of the lower class couldn't get just the daily necessities to keep on living the food, the clothes they needed without making themselves slaves to the upper class. And Micah was speaking out against this throughout the book of Micah. And so as judgment here, the Assyrian army is standing there. I want to mention here that this is exactly what sin will do in our lives. Sin will take us siege. It will take us hostage. You might think for a moment that you're enjoying the pleasures of sin. You might be enjoying 
disregarding the word of God in any particular area of life. But sin will take you hostage and it will destroy your life until the point where you find yourself in a hopeless situation and unable to deliver yourself. If you find yourself, as you're thinking this morning, if you find yourself in such a situation, let me ask you, is it because of sin? Is it because you have let down your spiritual guard and you've allowed sin to come into your life and you've justified it just a little bit here and you've justified it just a little bit there until you have no regard for what the Word of God has to say anymore? You're not guarding your eyes when it comes to what you're looking at. And little by little, it becomes more and more acceptable to go just a little bit further into that sin. You're not guarding yourself against the, the way that you speak, maybe in, in honesty. And little by little, you find yourself digging yourself further and further into the hole of sin until you're surrounded by sin and unable to escape. Now also around this time of year, there's another kind of hopelessness that seems to come, and that is sadness and grief. Maybe as you look back to the year previous, and you think of the things that you regret not doing, the things that you regret not saying, friends and loved ones that are no longer around to, uh, to interact with, maybe to express uh, either your gratitude for them or to go and, and to ask forgiveness for something that might have happened. Maybe this Christmas you're experiencing uh, the, uh, the first time being alone without somebody, without a significant person that was in your life. Maybe the friendship had dissolved, they moved away. Maybe there was death that had happened. Maybe it doesn't even have to be this last year. Maybe this has been something that's been going on for you year after year after year. And every year when it comes to this time of happiness and joy and celebration and Christmas gifts, instead of seeing the star of Bethlehem announcing the coming birth of Jesus Christ, instead you see dark clouds on the horizon waiting for you. And much like Israel... And much like the Jews in the time of Herod, you feel like there's nothing you can do. It's a hopeless situation. You feel like you're surrounded by an army. And nobody can come in, and you don't know how to get out. Micah draws the attention of the people in his prophecy to a future hope. And I would like to draw your attention also, if you're in that situation, or even if you're in the situation where you've let your, your guard down with sin, and so now you're surrounded by sin and the consequences of sin. Micah does this. He, he points to the future coming king. In verse 2 of chapter 5 in Micah. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, 
whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Jerusalem, look forward to this coming king. He shall be your peace. He shall be your security. Now, I don't want to miss something that's really cool here in verse 2. Bethlehem Ephrathah. Up to this point, the only reason why we would recognize the name perhaps Bethlehem is because of who came from Bethlehem. And uh, about... I want to say about 200 years before this point, David was in Bethlehem. That's where he came from. After the epic failure of Israel's king Saul, God tells Samuel, now I'm going to choose a king, and I'm not going to look at the things that Israel looked for in King Saul. I'm going to look for something different. I'm going to look on the heart. So I want you to go to Bethlehem. Here's this small village, not even, uh, let's see here, verse 2, who are too little, to, little, excuse me, too little to be among the clans of Judah. When Judah was being given the, the cities that it would inherit, Bethlehem isn't on that list. It's too small. It's too insignificant. But Samuel, I want you to go to Bethlehem, and I'm going to show you who will be my king. He goes to Bethlehem, to this city, to the village rather, that's too small to be even considered. And he comes to the family of Jesse. And he goes through each of the sons of Jesse and, and Samuel saying, well surely this is the king that God has in mind. And God says, no, I'm not looking with your eyes, I'm looking with my eyes on the heart. And who did he choose? But the youngest son in the house of Jesse who wasn't even worthy to be considered to be called out of the field to come and be a part of this lineup to see who would be king. So even David was overlooked, and he was a shepherd. And as the youngest son in his family, he stood to inherit nothing, most likely, from his father. And from David, from, from this little village in Bethlehem, comes the greatest king that Israel had known, King David. All of the other kings after that point would be compared to King David. And that's the point here. When Micah looks to Bethlehem, what does Bethlehem, this small little village, have to offer? Well, you see, God isn't so concerned about using the great things of man and the great uh, strength of man to bring about his plan. Rather, God is more interested in making his name great through the small things in this world. Bethlehem, this little tiny village. When we sang, Oh, little town of Bethlehem, it was a little town. It had nothing to offer of itself, it had no strength, it had no numbers. And it's from there that God chose to bring out the Messiah. 
there that Jesus would be born. With that, I want to say that if you, if you feel like you're small and you're insignificant, like you don't have a lot to offer, if there was a lineup and, uh, you know, for baseball teams, I know I'd probably be the last one chosen. They'd probably stick me out in the field with the sheep. I'd probably do better for the team out there too. But if you feel insignificant, if you feel small, and you wonder, well, what could God do with me? Well, you just might be exactly where God wants you to be, to bring glory to his name. Because in the end, it's not about you. It's not about what you can boast in. It's not about the strength that you bring to God. It's about what God does through you. It's the strength of God that is at work in you. Second Chronicles 36, 15 through 16 the Lord, the God of their... Uh, sorry, that's the wrong one. My apologies. Let's see here. I may not have that reference, and that would be okay. I thought I did. That's right. There is a verse in the New Testament that talks about how God does not choose the, the wise things of this world... He does not choose the strong things, the, the big things. I'm paraphrasing. This is coming from the MASB, the Matthew Allen Shipman Bible. God doesn't choose the, the big things. He chooses the small things to confound the wise so that no man can boast except in Jesus Christ and the strength that God gives. Turn with me back to Matthew Chapter 2, so here again we see this hopeless situation. Matthew again quotes from Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. I want to mention a few things about Judah here and Christ and what Matthew is doing by saying what he's saying here. And then I want to look at how we respond. I want to see how Herod responded. I want to look at how the chief priests and the scribes responded. And then I want to look at how the wise men responded. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah. Now, Matthew didn't say Bethlehem Ephrathah. Instead, he changes the quote to Judah. Do you wonder why he does that? Matthew spent the first chapter in the book laying out the, the lineage of Jesus, showing that this is the Messiah that was promised from David. He is from the line of Judah. He is that son that God told David would ascend to the throne and his reign would be forever. And so by tracing 
Christ's lineage back to David and the Davidic covenant. He is showing that this is the true king of Israel. Now Herod was in the place of the king of Israel, or the king of the Jews, rather, uh, because Rome had appointed him there. They had put this madman, this chronically insecure, murderous, dangerous, manipulative man in power, and said, this is the king of the Jews. What Matthew is doing is saying, this is the true king of the Jews, Jesus, because he's from the land of Judah. And so Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophecy in this, in this way, by where he is born and, and from the line that he comes from. Now, as we, look at, as we look at King Herod and his response, we see, this, we see this man who was deeply disturbed by the coming of Jesus. And why was he deeply disturbed? We see a little bit later here in chapter, uh, verse 4, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Did Perhaps Herod understood that this prophecy that the wise men were coming as a result of, that this was the Christ, this was the Messiah. And how would he ever stand against the Messiah, who would be the king of kings? And so his response was to become greatly troubled. He would do anything he could to hold on to the power that he had in his rule, in his reign. In fact, a little bit later on, in verse 16 through 18, we'll see the result of that wrath that was stirred up at the announcement of Christ's coming. So let me ask you, when Christ comes into your life, are you holding on to your right, so to say, to rule in your life? Are you content to be called a Christian and to, to come to church so long as it doesn't affect the rest of your week? You don't have to be too concerned about what you say for the rest of the week. You don't have to be too concerned about what you spend your money on. You don't have to be too concerned about the things you look at, the things you watch, and the things you listen to. Because as far as you're concerned, as long as Christ can stay over here and I don't have to yield my lordship, my own lordship over my life to the Lord, to the King, then I'm okay with that. But Christ doesn't come to be an add-on. He comes to have complete control, to have complete reign in our lives. Are we like Herod? Are we fighting against that? Now notice also when, uh, when, when Herod called the scribes and the chief priests together, it doesn't seem like they had a lot of trouble finding this prophecy. Instead, they were able to respond with the prophecy announcing Christ's birth. They knew what was going on here with the wise men. They knew what was going on when they came and asked where the king of the Jews was. 
But what did they do? Did they pursue with the wise men to go and find the, the, uh, the Christ? Did they go after them to find Jesus to worship him? They didn't. They had the knowledge. They had the understanding of where Christ was and, and what, he was, what he meant. But perhaps out of fear or maybe out of indifference, they chose not to respond. Are we like them? Do we hear the words of the Bible, of God's word, giving us truth, showing us how we should respond? And do we respond in indifference? Or perhaps we respond in fear? We're afraid maybe of what people might think or what people would do if we chose to really yield our lives over to Christ. And then we have the wise men. And this will be the last point here. The wise men came from Persia. They were astrologers. They were magicians. They were Gentiles, unclean Gentiles. And they were coming to worship the king of the Jews. So while the, while the Jews should have been responding with worship, instead these Gentiles come and they are pursuing the king of the Jews to worship him. Now I think Matthew is being very intentional with his inclusion of these wise men here. At the beginning of Matthew, we have a come and see gospel. Come and see the king. Come and, come and hear about God. By the end of the gospel of Matthew, we have a go and tell gospel. Go out into all the world, make disciples of all, all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So what Matthew is doing here by having these Gentiles come in to the scene, by recording that, is showing that the gospel is not just for the Jews, but for the entire world. If Jesus was the king of the Jews only, we would be without any hope, because we are Gentiles. We are unclean, according to uh, the Jewish tradition. But Jesus came for us. He came for you, to be your king. And what a different king we see in Jesus than the king of the Jews that Rome had put in place. Instead of King Herod who would murder and kill and manipulate and deceive, we have the king who will shepherd my people Israel. And if you want to know what a shepherd king looks like, Psalm 23 is an excellent place to go. Throughout the Old Testament, the, the kings of Israel were called the shepherds of Israel. And over and over and over again, they failed. Time and time again. But this is now the shepherd king, the great shepherd, who will lay down his life for his people, for his sheep. He is a great shepherd that will not fail. 
And of course, he did just that. He went to the cross. So this little baby that we're reading about in chapter 2, the reason why he came was to shed his blood on the cross at Calvary, that we might be brought out of the siege of sin that is around our lives, that we would no longer be in bondage to sin, but that we would know freedom and joy in him. And just like the Old Testament prophecy that Micah gave to the people of Jerusalem at that time, we too look forward to the coming of the king when his reign will be all over the earth, over all the earth. He will be known all over the earth. He will bring security and he will bring peace. So once again, how will you respond to the king? Will you be like the wise men who pursued hard after him to worship him, who fell down at the feet of Jesus, who offered him such extravagant gifts? Will you be like Hezekiah in the Old Testament, we didn't read about this, who cried out to the Lord and was delivered from Sennacherib because of his faith? Will you be delivered from your sin? Will you be saved? in response to the King of Kings. Let's pray. Father, would you show us? Would you show us, would you teach us the reason why you came? Would you allow that message to work its way into our hearts and help us to respond in a way that glorifies you? In Jesus' name, amen.